You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast, uh, where we talk about pop culture, high culture, politics, religion, and various combinations of those things. And today I get to talk about a movie that I think will address many of those intersections with one of my favorite people um, to have on the show is uh, C. Derek Varn. How's it going, Derek? That's pretty good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, Derek is... uh, one of my most popular guests, everyone loves Derek, and uh, uh, everyone that listens to my show, at least, I know he has his enemies out there, but uh, podcaster, poet, teacher, uh, how you been, uh, what you up to lately? Oh, I've been starting a new podcast called Pop the Left and associated live streams, which have eaten up a lot of my time. Um, I've been writing poetry and I teach, you know, like I always do. Yeah, and uh, I don't know how you get everything done. Um, the the live streaming. I don't sleep so, a lot. Well, I guess that that's where you start, I suppose. Yeah. Um, see, I'm old enough. I really need that sleep. Um, uh, so you're like Kari here in the movie. You, you have to learn how to sleep uh, eventually. So, or yeah, or at least I simulate do. it as she does. So uh, I guess to give a little spoiler, uh, today we're going to be talking about another Tarkovsky movie. Derek's been on the show in the past, and we've talked about first Andre Rublev. Uh, and then mm-hmm. we talked about Stalker, and today we're going to be talking about Solaris, which is a 1972 sci-fi movie that um, will feel, I think in many ways, like 2001. We'll do a little comparison to it, um, but it's actually quite different and completely unlike anything I've seen before, honestly, even uh, knowing that to expect the unexpected when I come into a Tarkovsky movie. Uh, this one even still kind of uh, um, caught me off guard in a few places. So um, I really enjoyed it as always, and I, I love talking about these movies with Derek, uh, and so I'm really grateful for him to take the time to come on the show and uh, and talk a little bit about uh, this movie and uh, and probably some other things along the way because you know Derek. But uh, but uh, do take a, a moment to go listen to the new show, Pop the Left. Um, you can find that on all your podcatchers yet. Yeah, it's available. Um, well, it's available in a couple places. It's kind of more than a podcast. So, on most um, Thursday nights right now in February, but from here on out, every other Wednesday night, it is a live stream on the Zero Books YouTube channel. Um, and then it is cut up and edited for a podcast. And there's also stuff on the Patreon. So, if you follow Zero Books, so you followed my old podcast, Not Redness. It should be pretty easy to find, but it's in multiple places and multiple formats. And like I said, I do live streaming now too. It's it's kind of an ordeal. Um, <laughs> You're pushing the medium, man, uh, which which is cool. Well, my boss is pushing the medium, so <laughs> as is probably <laughs> necessary. Really Podcasts are getting. Uh, uh, you know, it's reaching a stage of development, right? And so something different has to happen. So, 
Yeah, uh, and also I realized that our brand had a very different um, brand appeal. And it's funny to, for a Marxist talking about branding, but um, <laughs> it, like the people who liked us in the podcast and the people who liked us in um, the live stream were very different. Very different. Um, so that has to change. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been doing. Um, busy, 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 busy. And yeah, so I took time away, watched the Tarkovsky movie again. I've actually commented on this movie like at least one time. I think I may have twice. Um, the last time I did something on it was, I believe, 2014. Okay. On uh, and it's available on YouTube, but it was originally on a podcast called Former People Speak. Okay. Um, which was attached to the literary journal that I run sporadically called Former People. But the podcast died, I don't know, like five years ago. It's been dead for a long time. But, um, yeah, I recently revisited um, that recording and found myself arguing with myself a lot about this movie and about what the kind of – particularly the cognitive dissonance between the three versions of this film. Wow. There's the Tarkovsky version. There's an earlier kind of made-for-TV Moss film version. Um, and there is a Soderbergh version. Right, from like 2002 or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Stanislav Slim, uh, Lim actually saw them all. Mm. Um, made commentary on them all. Um, his... Uh, uh, it seemed like reading him that he hated Tarkovsky's the least, um, but was frustrated by how different it was, even like very, very thematically different than uh, the original source material. Yeah. And that source material hasn't been treated well in English because the the standard translation of the book, you know, as big as this, this movie is, um, and as important as Stanislav Lim is as an author in the States, the translation that we had was not a very good one originally that was translated from French then into English. So it was like a double translation. Um, so apparently, like only very recently has there been a good version of this book actually available in English. Oh, interesting. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of complications with this one. Um, but of course, Tarkovsky would have read it in Russian and maybe even Polish. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and you know, Russian being a much closer language to Polish than uh, than English is. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Um, and, I am, my understanding is that Lem's book, um, which I haven't read, has it spends much more time on the kind of nature of the planet Solaris, right? And right. For, for Tarkovsky, it's more of a, of a of an unsolvable mystery, and he really is interested in the effect that it has on the people than getting into this unveiling well, the secrets of the planet. Well, interestingly about the book actually is that um, that's actually a similar theme in Lim, but the reason why they feel that way and what they think is actually going on is um, kind of diametrically opposed. Mm. Um, it's similar to like um, Stalker in that um, the author has a radically different perspective than Tarkovsky does, and it follows that theme of Tarkovsky that he explores literally in Andrei Rubilev of like taking essentially secular literature and sacralizing it mm. um, through the image, through the icon. Yeah. But 
What's more complicated with uh, <laughs> with with Solaris is that thematically speaking, Solaris is you know is quite weird. It is about it is about the utter alienness of something other. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's and, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, and then we'll summarize no, the plot. Ahead. Well, I just thought it would be a good chance to summarize what this uh, story oh, yeah. is about, uh, in case someone doesn't want to spend two hours and forty five minutes watching a really great movie, which you should watch at some point in your life anyway. But we'll. Uh, it's the plot isn't much to fill in. There is a uh, a planet called Solaris, and the Soviet Union has had scientists studying this for decades now. And there's a basically a floating city um, that we uh, was a giant space station um, that seats up to 85 people or something, but there's only three on it now that uh, is studying this planet for for decades. And there's uh, an entire almost philosophy and an entire science um, that's been developed in the understanding of this called solaristics. And um, uh, they're sort of nearing the end of this. Uh, age of exploration, but the planet itself seems to be kind of a giant oceanic, almost sentient being itself. And so, um, and it has certain effects on the people who are observing it. And so there's a psychologist named Kelvin, who's the main character of the movie, and he is sent up to evaluate the three remaining crew, crew members. And when he's up there, uh, he discovers that one of the effects that the planet has is that it sort of like pulls people out of your subconscious and creates a version of that person uh, that uh, and it puts them on the ship with you. And in Kelvin's case, it is his uh, deceased ex-wife who'd committed suicide um, named mm. uh, what was her name? Uh, Kari. And uh, Kari is. Uh, kind of a being that gets invented by the planet out of Kelvin's imagination. And the uh, that's kind of the premise of the movie is him trying to understand her and her trying to understand herself. Um, she kind of comes to some sort of self-awareness. And so it's in a, a bit like an AI kind of story. Um, we have an AI sort of coming into consciousness of itself. Um, and But then you also have the consciousness from which it emerges as is another character. So it's a really interesting, complicated and philosophical story. Um, and uh, so that's kind of the, the background. What uh, let's, let's talk about what it has, how it relates to some of the other Tarkovsky movies. I know Andre Rublev shows up uh, in the, in Kelvin's cabin. Right. Uh, right. And, and so there's some relationships to that. Actually the actor who plays Andre Rublev, is one of the the scientists on the on the board of the ship, um, and who's also in Stalker. He's sort of one of the main characters in Stalker, so he has this kind of stock actor um, that I recognize. But um, so, how do you think this fits in largely in uh, Tarkovsky's career? Well, it's it is a transition between his sort of great works. I mean, I consider his great works to be probably uh, Ivan's Childhood and. Um, Andrew Rublev in his first period, and then this capstone by Stalker, which is you know not his last movie, but is you know it comes out a little bit later. Um, and then you have Nostalgia and some movies he released outside of the Soviet film system. Mm. Um, the the thing about this movie is it's so iconic in that we all kind of know about Solaris. If you if you've heard of a Tarkovsky movie, generally this is it. Yeah. Um, 
it's seen as a pair to Stanley Kubrick's um, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Although, I'm going to say that I'm not... I mean, I know this was somewhat explicitly in response to it, but I'm not sure that that's a good foil for this movie. Um, He's doing something very differently. Just on the level, I think Stanley Kubrick's obsessed with technology in that movie. mm -hmm. I write the the image of the bone flying. That's an early technology. Um, And I think... Um, Tarkovsky is utterly uninterested in technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, even the way he treats the sh- the the uh, space station is shabby, and yeah. they're they're doing things on it that like don't even make sense actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I think annoyed them. Um, <laughs> if you're into hard but, science fiction, you will not like this movie. Yeah. Right. But what's interesting is Lim Lim is a satirical science fiction writer, but he is kind of a hard science fiction writer, and so. The, he wasn't interested in the AI. So what's interesting about this thing that you're dealing with is this planet, which eventually, I mean, to spoil it, Kelvin submerged in. Mm-hmm. Um, is that as a mind that is utterly other. So when it tries to mimic a human mind, it creates a third thing, which is its attempt to be human, and it absorbs the memories, or actually it absorbs the memories of the perceived memories yeah. of, of a human character, but it doesn't really understand what it is to be human. And the more it knows, the less it wants to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that, it seems like at first and in, in, in Hari's case, that it is her reaction to, to her own past. But then you realize, no, it may be the actual drive of this be you know this this planetary being um once it embodies a human consciousness that it can't handle it either um and the reason why you say that is it seems to not go well for anybody on the ship yeah usually it drives the solaris insane yeah if it doesn't they perpetually kill or fight with the the thing that is emergent from their memory. Yeah, that is an interesting um, thing. When um, Hari first shows up, um, the Kelvin actually kills her. Right? Uh, he right. actually puts her in a rocket and shoots her off, and and then she just kind of shows up again. So there's this sort of perpetual reproduction going on here. Um, and then with the second version of her, he ends up kind of falling in love uh, with with this image of his ex-wife, uh, which is, that's, uh, you know, a very complicated thing we'll get into probably later here, but yeah, go right ahead. Right. So you have all this complicated stuff going on. Um, but what the tension in this movie is that the dialogue can seem utterly nihilistic because some of it is from Lim and Lim is, Lim and Tarkovsky share a a um, skepticism about human progress, but Lim does it from the opposite perspective. Whereas Tarkovsky is, you know, profoundly Orthodox Christian, Lim thinks, you know, pr- uh, think is a secular humanist who thinks secular humanism is probably too progressive, mm. um, and that change is really stochastic and that alien things are utterly alien and you're not progressing towards anything. Um, Tarkovsky and Lim worked on this together and apparently didn't get along. Mm. Um, 
And like I said, Lim hated this the least of the three versions because he said the the first version, the the first Soviet version, was watered down and um, although more accurate to the actual events of the book than any of the other versions, hmm. he thought it was uh, that. Part of it is that he seemed to think this was too Russian. Part of it is that um, he thought that Tarkovsky was messing around with the themes of the movie and he changed a lot of crucial things, introduced the family life in, which he thought was unnecessary. Even I, watching this film, that part's weird. At the beginning. Um, and at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I took it to have something to do with that painting, uh, Hunters in the Snow, that is featured so prominently in here, which is a, a symbol or a, a, that we can talk about later. But I, I had it, I, I took it to have something to do with this kind of nostalgic look back at a, a past that maybe never was, sort of. Um, but yeah. Right. Um, so I think that's interesting. I'm going to read you Lim's response to the Tarkovsky film. Okay. And and then we can kind of go from there because this is what's been sitting on me, you know, me thinking about this movie for, I don't know, 10 years. Okay. Um, I have fundamental observations about this adaptation. First of all, I would have liked to see the planet Solaris, which director unfortunately denied me as the film was to be a cinematically subdued work. And secondly, as I told Karkofi during one of our quarrels, they didn't make Solaris at all. He made crime and punishment. <laughs> What we got in the film is only how an abominable Kelvin was driven to poor Harry to suicide and that the pangs of his conscience were amplified by her appearance, a strange and incomprehensible appearance. The phenomenalistics of, uh, of Harry's subsequent appearances are for me an exemplification of a certain concept which can be derived from Kant himself. Because there exists a Dongun Suk, the unreachable, the thing in itself, the other side which cannot be penetrated. But in my prose, this was made appear and orchestrated completely differently. I have to make it clear, however, that I haven't seen the whole film except for the 20 minutes of the part of the second part, although I know the screenplay by heart because Russians have a custom of making an extra coffee for the author. Mm. What was totally awful, Tarkovsky introduced Kelvin's parents into the film and this auntie of his because of all the mother, mother is Mott, Mott is Russia, Rodinia, Zemilia, uh, Russia, motherland, the earth. Hmm. This made me already quite mad. At this moment, we are like two horses pulling in carriage in opposite directions. Incidentally, the same thing happened to the uh, Stryoskis when Tarkovsky made Stalker based on Roadside Picnic and just up some stew that nobody understands but the stew is duly sad and gloomy. <laughs> Tarkovsky reminds me of a sergeant from the time of Turgenev. He is very pleasant and extremely uh, uh, prepossessing and at the same time a visionary and elusive. One cannot catch him anywhere because he is always slightly different place already. This is simply a type of person who he is. When I understood, I stopped bothering. The director cannot be reshaped by anyone. First of all, one cannot convince him of anything as he's going to recast everything in his own way no matter what. The whole sphere of cognitive and epistemological considerations was extremely important in my book, and it was tightly coupled to the soloristic literature and to the existence of soloristics as such. Unfortunately, the film has robbed of those qualities rather throughout. In small bits and through the, cra uh, the tracking of the camera shots, we discover the fates of those present at the station, but the fates should not be an existential anecdote, but whether a grand 
question considering man's position in the cosmos, etc. My Kelvin decides to stay on the planet without any hope whatsoever, while Talkrovsky created an image of some kind of island which appears, and an island that is a hut. And when I hear about the hut and the island, I'm beside myself with irritation. That's also, the island's actually, um, he's reading this from the script. If you look at the actual movie, it is the house where it rains inside. Right. Um, which mirrors his house on Earth. Right. This is just some emotional sauce into which Karkasi has loved his heroes, not to mention he has completely amputated the scientific landscape and in this place introduced so much weirdness that I cannot understand. <laughs> and I, I, I find this to be true, but I also find it's because um, Lim's not approaching this, not not approaching this, and doesn't seem to to credit Tarkovsky's religious vision. Yeah. Um. That when. When uh, Kelvin at the end of the movie submerges himself into the into the Solaris, the Solaris, he is reversing what has happened to Hari, who is the planet, mm-hmm. as his own memories. But what you see in in that is like the thriving mass of all humanity. But he gets his home, his you know his 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 aunts and all that back kind of in the in the hut which is his house you see that and you see the picture in the background which is for captured in the art yeah but you also see that it's not right yeah the logic fails as it's raining inside right yeah yeah it's raining inside he like the, the his his experience of solaris cannot capture his experience of earth right just like um uh the planet cannot manifest Hari completely in a way that is actually Hari that doesn't want to die. The pain of the memories of a human being drive the planet over the edge. So, yes, you do get this kind of redempted feeling at the end, but it's a redemption that has, if you know, if you're reading it as a parallel experience, if you read that ending as the inversion of what's been happening throughout the film, um, that's not actually super hopeful for Kelvin. (laughs) No, yeah. Um, I mean, I, this, I remember debating this when I discussed this movie with uh, Stephen Mikalkov, who is, I believe, Catholic, and was my co-editor at Former People, and Douglas Lane, who now works at Zero Books. And we couldn't agree on whether or not the ending of Tarkovsky's version was hopeful or not. Um, One thing, the, when he kneels at his father's feet on the doorstep of the house mm-hmm. in the in the Solaris version of his home. Um I I read something somewhere and I honestly can't remember where I read it now that that is mirroring uh, a famous painting by Rembrandt I think of right. uh, the prodigal son uh returning home. And so I it, that story is hopeful about a broken person, you know, coming back. So if Tarkovsky is meaning is using that image purposefully and not ironically, then um, I think he maybe intends it to be hopeful. Um, but it is also very eerie. Um, and, and I think mm-hmm. that that's a, that's an important thing to bear in mind about it. Agreed. Um, and so, you know, one thing, I guess I want to ask you when Hari is embodied, it, I didn't take it that she was the planet. Like I, I took it that the planet jumped into his consciousness, pulled out his 
memories of Hari and created that Hari as an independent being. Um, I didn't take it as uh, as a, an, a, an elaboration on the planet's own consciousness. I, I took it as as a, as a creation of the planet that has its own independent being. Um, am I wrong? I mean, maybe I misread or misunderstood. It's it's so that's actually a big question in the book and one that I think it's hard to parse. Okay. Because what it seems to be happening is the planet is trying to understand humans and make itself palatable to humans, but in doing so creates this third being, which is pain by its dual existence. Yeah. The guests, um, we call them. Yes. Right. The guests. But the guests are actually part of the collective consciousness of the planet. The 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 alienation comes from the fact they've embodied a human mind. Mm-hmm. Or, or they're attempting to embody a human mind. Right. And so in so much of that human mind is separate from the collective consciousness of the planet, they are separate beings. But they are fully emergent from the planet's um, attempt at understanding. It is not like an AI. Right. It's not programmed. It is part of the planet's consciousness and I guess can rejoin it. So, um, yeah. And, and it's always, I mean, it gets regenerated. Um, they, they're basically immortal um, as long right. as they're part of the planet, as long as they're near the planet, right? Um, and And I guess we should also say that this whole... Um, guests thing starts happening on, on the mm-hmm. space station when the space station starts like beaming radiation into the planet as to, to like probe it in some way. And so the planet mm-hmm. reacts to that kind of aggression by sending right. these creatures, um, well, these people, these beings, let's call them at least beings, uh, into uh, the uh, into the, the space station. For what purpose? I don't know. Are they there to torture? I mean, I was thinking, is this like no exit and they're there to torture people with things that um, uh, the planet knows will torture them because they all seem to be very unhappy with this. And then with the one guy uh, with uh, Sartorius, there's this Mm. strange like dwarf that comes out of his room and is never explained. Right. Uh, We just see an image of a dwarf that um, has apparently emerged from his imagination. And... um... Yeah, I mean, there's the, and there's the African woman with the, with the other, um, the other one. It, how malicious it is is unclear. Like, I think that's something you're supposed to struggle with. Mm-hmm. Is is it malicious because, the because it does seem to drive so many of them to suicide. Is it a self preservation, or is it trying to understand humans? Is it a little bit of both? Yeah. Um, that's never really explained in any version of this movie because mm. it, it, it's something that's struggled with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, but the, whatever, whatever the, whatever's going on, brainwaves are like the brainwave patterns are being read by the, by the, um, by the planet yeah and so like there and that's in creating something and those hallucin you know at first they're seen as hallucinations but they have their own life yeah they bleed um, they it, die yeah what's interesting is that in some ways the humans are also other to the planet because if the planet's trying to understand humans the humans are also trying to annihilate it to understand it yeah um, the x-rays that are damaging it are actually them trying to understand what's going on on the planet. Yeah. And that becomes like a source of, I guess, ideological or philosophical 
uh, conflict mm-hmm. between the the side the Solaris um, when with uh, with uh, Sartorius who was in Stalker and played Andre Rublev uh, the actor uh, his he's very sort of like we are it's very nihilistic the philosophy he espouses um, mm-hmm. and and so his he has a very kind of cold view of the universe as as though he's perfectly okay with like destroying something for the sake of knowledge for the sake of science and um kelvin on the other hand is sort of abandoning rash i I guess i would call that guy extreme rational extreme rationality uh Mm -hmm. and and kelvin is sort of abandoning that for a kind of extreme humanism right and to the point where he completely effaces himself by entering the planet yeah so that um that is that is a craziness. And what what's interesting about this book is, I mean, and and the movie is so much of it is discussions between Sartorius and Kelvin, Kelvin's father and Kelvin, um, and Snout and Kelvin. Yeah. Um, but what's even more weird about it is how little dialogue there is for how much of it is driven by yeah. by these conversations. Um, the book is is full of dialogue, but this is largely is slow moving images. I mean, it takes like what almost forty minutes before you really get anything. Like then the first thing is that long scene of the Tokyo city street. Yeah, yeah. When yeah, so that is another character we haven't talked about. When um, this sort of the begin the beginning of the movie, Kelvin is at his father's house, and mm-hmm. he's visited by a former astronaut. Um, who uh, many decades prior had a kind of mystical experience with the planet um, and thought he saw like a giant child basically. Um, and so he comes to visit Kelvin before he goes up to the, up to Solaris and they have a very uh, intense and kind of ungratifying conversation. And then when it's over, we see that that astronaut driving home for like 15 mm-hmm. minutes. <laughs> we have these, right. like maybe not 15 minutes, 10 minutes of, uh, of, of, almost like first person shooter shots of, uh, of him driving through the streets, uh, for reasons that are unclear to me. Um, what, what did you make of that, uh, of that, of that sequence? I think it's supposed to like really push you in earth for a second, like in, and like a kind of tedious uh, way where you have to kind of follow through on the near obsession of it, but I'm not totally sure that's all that's going on there. That scene's always fascinated me. Yeah, and it's one of those scenes. Another thing that happens frequently in this movie is the color palette uh, changes. Uh, like almost in mid scene, sometimes it'll go from a very rich color to a black and white to some some blue mm-hmm. sepia tone, and uh, and they seem to be signifying various subconscious uh, activity uh, within the the main character. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's another thing that's kind of a puzzle to me as to what is actually behind what's motivating those choices, I suppose. Right. So this, this movie is like all the other Sark- or Tarkovsky movies I've seen is, uh, is one that sticks with you. And uh, it definitely uh, uh, leads to more questions than it's going to uh, answer. Um, right. One thing. So let, while we're still talking about his relationship with Hari, um, I, so Let's just assume that the planet has created 
an independent being. Like it's just given birth to a being that is now coming into its own consciousness. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what is interesting about that is that, and this is where I think it has some relationship to um, stalker because it seems to be to me that the planet only has the information from your mind. And so the being that you're presented with um, in this case, his, his ex-wife is a, is not an exact duplication of the actual person, but of your perception of that person, right? Right. And so it forces you to confront the limitations of your own imagination, the the kind of uh, hidden desires that you may not even be aware of in yourself, right? Which is something right. that Stalker is definitely invested in. It's sort of like this int- opportunity for introspection. And, and I thought that that was one of the most kind of like kind of beautiful and fascinating and almost terrifying aspects of this movie is that um, it makes you wonder, I mean, in all of our human relationships, how much of them are just, we're interacting with conceptions of people, not the actual people. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he fought, he refalls in love with the conception of his ex. Who he had fallen out of love with. And so she committed suicide. Right. He be- right. essentially drives her to suicide, and now he's in love with, with the reproduction. Yeah, right. Which is a fascinatingly weird thing to deal with, right? Like, it's it's interesting what's going on there. So, yeah. what do you make of of that exactly? Like, I've I've thought for years about like how sincere we should take his love to be. Well, is it just guilt? I mean, is he just sort of paying penance? Right? Is the, is the question? Um, right, which is what um, I think Lim read this as. Okay, that it was just guilt. Um, well, but that's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's. Uh, so I find that fascinating that Lim thought it was mostly guilt driving him, not anything other like substantive. And, and I tweeted out actually a quote um, earlier today. As it as I came across it, um, Kelvin actually says these words near the end of the movie: "Shame, the feeling that will save mankind." Right, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's a really fascinating. Uh, there is like a productive value in guilt, uh, in that it it forces you to treat other people as they should be treated kind of. And, and there's right. that, and that it comes after this extended meditation about the impossibility of loving humankind. Right. Um, that's, Oh yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. So that, that's, that's also a major key point of the, of the book. And so you, sorry about that. It's okay. So, um, so you are stuck trying to figure out like, it's a key point of the book in the movie, but one of the places where I think they significantly differ because guilt in imagery for Tarkovsky is like how the sacred is manifested on Earth in a way. Like you feel your you guilt creates your internal personalization. The image is something to which you have a relationship with. It's in iconography. It's also part of your relationship to God. And mm. in, um, in Lim, it's kind of a sign of an epistemic failure that the that the planet and the human can never know each other, that they are radically other. Mm. Now that's kind of in Tarkovsky because man and God are also radically other, but there's a sense in which Kelvin is redeemed in Tarkovsky by that gap, and that is not the case in the novel. 
Um, and, and, and Snope and Sartorius, or not Snope, Snout and Sartorius both are kind of mouthpieces for um, Lim, I gathered, in the book when I read it the first time. And I don't get that in the movie, that, like, they speak for, uh, in general, they don't speak for um, Tarkovsky at all. Yeah, you almost get a sense that they are kind of like Job's friends <laughs> a little bit. Right. Um, they're, they're just sort of to give alternative viewpoints to bounce off of, right? While not actually espousing the, the actual belief of the, of the creator here. So, um, right. yeah. Um, and you brought up iconography. And so, and that's mm-hmm. obviously that's what is, uh, Andrei Rublev is obsessed with. I mean, it's about an iconographer, right? Um, and so, and, and that there's an Andrei Rublev icon in Kelvin's uh, cabin, basically in his room. And, and so, is is there a sense then that the human that the the repro the reproduction that the planet creates are kinds of icons against which we are supposed to have some kind of moral growth from uh, by our interaction with? Uh, do you understand? I think so. I mean, and it does seem that like for Tarkovsky, there's actually like a plan for the you know a plan for this, even if it's imperfect. Yeah. That like the Solaris is is still from the same sort of cosmos as as the human and thus is not totally as foreign. That's like the focus on the relationship seems uh, more profound. Yeah. And so I think that that um, definitely puts this film in Tarkovsky's oeuvre, right? It it definitely Mm -hmm. makes it make sense. Um, And it also kind of makes it make sense how it, violates Slim's own kind of uh, understanding of, of what's really going on in his work. Um, and so th- that's fascinating. And that actually does clarify something for me. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about, I guess, in relationship, one, at one point, Snout, I think, I think it's Snout who says something about mechanical reproduction. And immediately Benjamin comes to mind. Uh, and surely these folks read Benjamin, um, I would think. Uh, and, and so like, what do you think there is? Some, and cause Benjamin in that essay, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction is, um, def- is, is interested in questions of authenticity and, um, right. like what he calls aura. Uh, and he, he definitely writes about things in a, like a religious sense in that essay. And, and I'm just wondering if there's some way you think that applies, that framework applies to the kind of reproduction well, there, yeah. we see here. There's sort of a tension there. Now, what's interesting about Benjamin is like, you know, Tarkovsky's kind of anti-communist, but he exists in a communist society. Mm-hmm. And so the tension between Benjamin's um, Marxism and his sort of messianic Judaism really come out in that essay because there is a sort of materialism to it, but there's also like a wrestling with this messianic figure that um, is almost unique to to Benjamin, where there's you know this kind of Kabbalistic messianism mm-hmm. to what he's doing, and I think maybe the the tension is being explored there where the alienation through technology and the alienation from the authenticity of the image is also part of what's going on. Um, and again, so like the hostility toward technology is different than in the, than in the book. So, but I, I think what's interesting about that is, is that makes the, the, the film itself kind of a bit of meta commentary because he's trying to bring in some authenticity through this Soviet 
film. Yeah. Um, where there's all kinds of overlapping images and and whatnot. And he had some issues in getting parts of this film cleared, right? There were some minor... He ended up seemingly to win most of those battles. Uh, I guess some minor changes were made, but um, there was nothing that... I mean, kept the film from being released, right? And so, correct. Um, which I was actually talking to some friends today about how he was able to make the kinds of movies he made in the Soviet system. Uh, he must have been a master politician, uh, like in terms of navigating that that kind of uh, that kind of system, or he was just so dense nobody understood what was going on. Um, yeah. Um, but um, and so uh, yeah, and so I would think though that questioning the limits of rationalism. Uh, which this movie does. It really kind of mm-hmm. um, embraces mysticism and mystery in general. And in many ways, it reminds me of what we were talking about with in our episode we did on A Serious Man, which was right. a, an advocation for um, embracing the mystery. It's kind of the tagline of that movie. Um, and so and, and I would think that that kind of ideological position would kind of rub some people in a materialist uh, like scientific communist society uh, the wrong way, right? Right, one would think. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, it is, I don't know, what are, what are your thoughts on, on that and how, it, and how it looks in the movie, I guess? Um, I think that there's a whole lot of sneaking going on. I think that's also part of why Tarkovsky had a penchant for picking kind of atheistic science fiction to do a lot of this exploration with because they have plausible deniability and popular text to get people to watch his films, mm-hmm. which probably wouldn't happen otherwise. I mean, we've talked about the difference between Moss film and, you know, Mo- you know Soviet film in general's pace different and whatnot than, uh, than Western film, although sometimes that's just try to mimic it. But this is very, very different than that. And I, I think that that's a – a way to get past the censors, but I don't think that's all that's going on. I mean, like I said, there's a thematic thing going all the way back to Andrew Rubliev where you're using like secular, even hostile powers to do God's will. And that's kind of what Tarkovsky's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, uh, that invading force, right. In, uh, right. And these, there's no holy fool character. Well, unless you count the, uh, Snout could be. Yeah, Snout. Even though he's not holy. He's like accidentally kind of a holy fool character. Yeah, he's sort of like his, uh, the person he relies on most in that care in that movie. Um, and I guess we should say there were three scientists on board when he was on his way there. And the one he was actually friends with has uh, committed suicide before right. um, his arrival. And we never found out how he did so. We just see his body frozen in a uh, in a holding tank or something. Um, but uh, we're told that I'll tell you later how he kills himself. And I don't remember that detail. If, if, if I missed it, I apologize. But um, and so there's sort of a mystery about the, the death of, uh, of his friend. Leaving no, it's him, never exposed, yeah. if, I, if I remember correctly. Yeah, leaving him kind of with without any guidance really on that ship. Um, so he has to discover this all on his own. Um, I, I want to, a couple other things I want to tackle um, w- about this movie. One of which is um, the idea of achieving humanity. I think this with Hari, the reproduction of Hari, um, as she kind of mm-hmm. comes into awareness of herself, there seems to be some sort of move uh, towards her actually 
qualifying as a human eventually, right? And so I want to get there in okay, a second. I mean, Go she, ahead. We'll she get gets there more now. and more ability to move independently. You know, at first she can't exist very far away from from Kelvin, but later on she can exist in other rooms without him. Yeah. Yeah, she has to tears herself apart uh, running through a door um, that he closes behind her, right? Um, and then, of course, she regenerates and and, uh, and comes back to life. But then eventually she's uh, she does seem to be... Um, um, able to exist without her, without him. Um, and, right. and just the ability to sleep. Like at first she has to kind of just like mimic sleep, uh, but she can't even like conceive of sleep. Right. And it seems like as the film goes on, she, uh, acquires the ability to sleep. Right. And so, right. And, and, and in addition to all that though, there's like a, she's actually cognitively like, proclaims humanity for herself in a debate with um with uh, sartorius right uh and so there is a way in which she sort of embraces her independence as a being and and her and qualifies herself as a human right right no for sure and and so she does but the first thing she does when she does that is try to negate herself yes she drinks uh liquid oxygen or something like that right um right and then ultimately does um kill herself right she Mm -hmm. uh conspires at some point kelvin has an illness and he goes into some sort of hallucinatory like fever and when he wakes up there's a note from her saying that um i have asked them to do me in and there's some sort of annihilation machine that they've created to actually once and for all um get her out of the um place um and uh and so she yeah her action as a human is to kill herself which is very existentialist isn't it oh yeah for sure yeah so but you get the feeling she can't handle her humanity because her being is not human her her beingness is something something else her resurrection is creepy um when she after she drinks the liquid oxygen and we see her body just like lying there frozen um we know the characters know she's going to re- resurrect. Right. And so, and when she does, mm-hmm. it's like, it's ugly and it's painful. And it like this kind of, um, oh, geez, is it Lukács who writes about the concept of Gerwerfenheit just sort of thrownness into being, um, I, I sort of, uh, get this idea. That's how I feel about her. She's sort of painfully thrown into being with no context. And so to, right. to become human is a painful process for her. Yeah, it seems to be. Yeah. Um, and another thing I want to do, um, and then I'll kind of let you just talk about whatever you want to talk about, I suppose. But I want to make sure I covered this. Going back to something that you said from the Lem quote about the the mother imagery in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And Lem associated that with some sort of Russian patriotism or Soviet patriotism. Um, right. I, I don't know that I buy that reading of, of what Tarkovsky's doing there. Um, I kind of feel like mother has much more to do with a psychological kind of idea of like creation here. Um, uh, and so, I mean, I'm just thinking maybe I'm too, I'm an English professor, right? And so this is, <laughs> this is the kind of way I look at these things. But when I see oceans, I mean, in literature that has always been sort of symbolically coded as feminine. Right. And, um, and so this ocean planet is this kind of almost like 
all powerful progenitor mother, right? That um, is, right. is the source of creation. And then in, in, in his flashbacks, he sees his young mother, right? And, um, and there's, and I, I just think there's something to do here with um, the idea of motherhood and creation. Um, and, and that's how I'm reading that metaphor in this movie. Yeah, I think there's a lot to do with it. I think there's this idea that the motherhood is a creation and that's, that's sort of a proxy for um, the Theotokos, um, which, you know, seems to be, you know, you know, the thing that enables salvation. So this comes up over and over again, which is, I think both Lim misreads Tarkovsky and, frankly, Soderbergh, when he remakes this movie, misreads Tarkovsky for seeing the romantic element as what the primary driver of Hari's tragedy. Hari enables Kelvin to redeem himself, but... Hari's not it's not even a human woman, it's the image of of a woman who had destroyed herself. Mm-hmm. Um and in whose perpetual destruction sort of forces Kelvin to deal with his own selfishness. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's 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 a you know, that's a very different thing than some of the other readings of this movie. Yeah, um, and I guess you're right. At the beginning, you said that they're not taking into account his um, deeply religious, you know, beliefs, right, in nature. And I think it, it, that's one of the places it comes out. Um, like I said, I think if you're seeing this, if you're looking for a science fiction film, uh, it's probably going to disappoint you. I mean, it's, it definitely qualifies as science fiction, but it's much more of a philosophy movie set in space. <laughs> I would think. Right. Um, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and so um, I'm kind of going through my list here <laughs> of things. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the the resolution of the movie. Okay. The, so, oh gosh, I always have to look at the name. Sartorius comes up with a plan to kind of end the visitations of the others, of the guests, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm thinking of us here um, <laughs> from Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the he and so his plan is to somehow read um Kelvin's brain waves and s- transmit his like uh, a map of his brain basically to the planet um and then he, for some reason he thinks that's going to stop the the sending of these guests and and it right, seems because it they're going to quit work. trying to understand him right so they're going to quit trying to which indicates that the attack that was not figures out the attack isn't an attack it's it's a failed attempt at communication and understanding. Yeah. Which is honestly mirroring what they're doing to the planet. Yeah. Um, and so once Snout figures it out and they do it, that, that does seem to, that seems to finish it all off, but then Kelvin has this want to merge with the planet, but he doesn't say that. He struggles with it, and then we just discover, he seems like he's at home, and then you realize he's not at home. He's... You know, completely um, submerged into the into the planet's you know yeah consciousness with really ominous music. Um, you've got very mm-hmm. ominous music uh, playing in the background, and we have this very slow zoom out, and we see the house that we've seen in the beginning in this very beautiful natural setting. There's a pond there too. Uh, like, look, mm-hmm. he's always gazing into bodies of water, right? And so, going back to oh, my yeah. psychoanalytic here about femininity, but. Um, the uh, uh, but that zooms out and you see that they're on basically a little island in the midst of this ocean. But those islands are a development 
of its understanding of Kelvin's brain. And so when they when it gets the information that they beam down to it, um, what they notice they were told by snout is that they started developing islands um, where it was just a, a massive ocean planet, basically um, right. little, little pockets of land uh, start developing and, and, and growing. Um, what do you make of that? Like, what is the, the purpose of the Island uh, creation? Well, it, it seems to be mimicking the planet seems to be becoming something like earth and which kind of makes Kelvin Adam. But it's not right. Mm. And so there's that. Now, the thing is, I think there's a lot of interpretation there because that's not fully explored in, in, the, in the movie. And I'm not quite sure what it's really supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, because in the book, he just, submer- he just merges with, the, with Solaris kind of hopelessly, um, almost killing himself. And this, he seems like they seem to have created a new world by him being there. Yeah. But one that's very creepy. I mean, even if it is hopeful, it is very creepy. It almost, I don't know if you ever saw the, the, the well, it's cre- almost Gnostic in like a demiurgic sense, right? Like, what do you mean by that? Like there's this, like it's a false creation or it's like, uh, uh, like, a. uh, um, a, a mimicry that just is not quite right is yeah. missing something. Yeah, yeah, it's uncanny, right? Um, right. And and so no, I, uh, and that actually it reminds me actually of the ending. I don't know if you ever saw that Krampus movie from a few years ago. Um, the, the end of that movie ends well, not to spoil it, but it ends in a similar way with the family thinking everything's normal, but then um, we see that they're living in a snow globe that's now owned by Krampus, right? And so uh, it's sort of like a a creepy false reality that will seem real to the people inside, kind of. Um, um, Although not quite. Uh, You you get the sense in Kelvin's face that he knows something's up when he sees it raining inside, right, for example. Right, Um, like that he's not, that didn't completely submerge him. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess one thing, I'm thinking about, and maybe I'm just, I'm teaching the horror film class this semester, so I, I am frequently taking psychoanalytic approaches to things like this. And so um, when you think about the ocean, you think of like this um, unbroken oneness, like wholeness, right? Um, mm-hmm. This like pre, pre to use Lacanian terms, like pre-symbolic uh, just wholeness with the universe, right? Um, and... Um, and when the islands start coming up, it's like carving up that wholeness to create um, distinction and and the possibility for existence in the way humans uh, define existence. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we we have mm-hmm. to have a uh, uh, a sense that we are apart from the whole. Um, I guess going back to Lacan in the mirror stage or something like that, right? Uh, we we have right. A, we have a self with borders outside of this whole, this nameless whole. Uh, and and so I wonder if that's part of what's going on. The planet adapting to human psychology, um, like human human beings need to exist separately from. Uh, a borderless hole and so it's creating islands for that to happen uh, I, I don't know uh, maybe I'm being in this is why everyone hates English professors I, I, <laughs> so I hate myself but uh, yeah I'd love to, I'd love your thoughts on that well 
that element of the movie I've had I've just struggled with because it's not part of the book. It's it it's it's not it's not entirely like if I take the Gnostic reading, it almost violates Tarkovsky's um, beliefs, the, beliefs and theology. Yeah. Um, unless unless that's supposed to be like an ominous false creator, in which case it makes the whole thing villainous. But that isn't the feeling you got from the interaction between Hari and Kelvin the entire time. Nor you're supposed to feel like this is some kind of hell uh, that he just earned. That there is some kind of almost theosis going on. But but those the, the islands throw it off. Like and sometimes I just think maybe he was like maybe it's like an accidental thing and we're over focusing on a detail. But like. It does seem significant that the planet becomes more Earth-like, but but wrong. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's. I mean, this is what Freud would call the uncanny, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, and and so it is something that's unheimlike, right? It's it's uh, it's not homelike, and so it's it works in a very creepy way in that way. Um, and so yeah, I guess I don't know. I don't know where I come down on the ending. Then I, I really to go back to your original question about whether I see it as hopeful or not, it does seem like it could be kind of an eternal punishment where someone's mm-hmm. constantly looking backwards uh, and uh, trying to make amends for past wrongs, right, that they've, that they've done. So it, it can be seen at least as a purgatory, if not a hell. Right. No, I could see that. Uh, but it, it, it's not explicitly that either. So it's like, is he... Is he having to burn away his like parts of his fallen humanity, which is the actually the the orthodox view? There's not a purgatory exactly, but there's sort of a purification or a theosis that you kind of start in life, but definitely finish on your ascent to heaven. But if that's the case, why does everything feel uncanny and wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if we're supposed to think of Solaris as God, just as part of the same cosmos as Kelvin's from. Mm-hmm. And like I said, going back to the original text only confuses matters because Lim is much more nihilistic and um, and much more scientific minded. And obviously, we got you know when I read his critique, he he obviously doesn't really understand the movie that was presented, and he didn't even watch it; he just read the script. Right. Um, it very much reminds you of like Stephen King's. Um, distaste for Stanley Kubrick shining, right? Uh, there's like right. A, there's a way in which, I mean, there's a way in which you can think about Tarkovsky and, and Kubrick together uh, as as similar careers uh, in the way that they especially deal with source material, but they're also very... And the way they deal with source material and the way they deal with image. I mean, they deal with imagery, although in a completely different way. I mean, like, there's a clinicalness to the crispness of of Kubrick's imagery, and there is not at all no. with um, Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky, weirdly, is more humanistic across the board. Yeah. he. I mean, it's going. he's going out of his way to make space travel look um, untechnological. I mean, it looks like going yeah. back in time. Uh, it's junky, and it's um, unkept, and it it's not even bothering to abide by any kind of laws of physics <laughs> in terms of uh, right. like gravity and that kind of thing. Um, uh, although there is that one weird moment where there's 30 seconds of no gravity because of some move that the space station makes around the planet um, and, and everything in a really beautifully, I mean, a really great conceived special effect shot. Uh, people start floating in the room with, with him and Hari together. And, and, and that is a very interesting moment. Um, of which I don't know what to make of it, but uh, yeah, this movie is is kind of a mystery box. Like, uh, and I think that's one of 
Tarkovsky's real strengths as a filmmaker is that he mm-hmm. gives you, and I think that's one thing he wants. I, I show a video of him talking like his advice to young people or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, talking, he's sitting in a tree or something like this. And he's like, he's talking about like um, you having to have the ability to be alone with yourself and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and kind of understand oneself apart from any of these contexts and uh, uh, that we find ourselves kind of wrapped up in. And his movies force you to do that. His, in order to properly watch a Tarkovsky movie, you can't be on your phone at the same time, even if you understood no, Russian. You, you know? <laughs> like you have to, you have to watch it actively and slowly and patiently. I mean, it, I find that the first time I watch a Tarkovsky movie, I'm almost bored, but then something happens once I, once I get into its pacing and feel and, and also that I get into its internal logics where you know, which are more visual than even narrative. Yeah. And um, then it immerses me and I don't even notice the time, but at first it's almost boring. Now I've said, I've said this about Russian film in general, that it, that, you know, the Soviet era Russian films tend to be slower and weirder and they don't follow exactly our, they're slightly more avant-garde. I mean, going all the way back to Eisenstein, they do things that we think we recognize, but they do it in different ways yeah, but this film is, you know, like it, it is. It is interesting to compare Tarkovsky to Kubrick because of the, like they both like movies that don't have a lot of dialogue, you know? but they're so different in what they're actually doing. And and I don't know. I I kind of appreciate the fact that they respect me enough that they don't feel like they have to pander to my attention span, right? Um, and Ever. so Yeah, and, and like I'll sit there and watch him pan across a blade of grass for 48 seconds, right? And uh, and just ponder the beauty of that image, right? And I guess this is the idea of iconography, right? Is you just look at a still image and there's some sort of spiritual work being done by your engagement with something that's kind of slow and, uh, and, uh, and, and requires you to move yourself. It's not going to move for you, I suppose, uh, in order to make the, 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 the engagement. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that about Tarkovsky's movies. And I read a similar thing from what you said uh, from Roger Ebert about this movie. When he first saw it, he was sort of less than thrilled. But as the movie went on, I think the way he put it was the it, it revealed its shape to him somehow. And, and then all of a sudden you're sort of you found yourself floating along with the movie in that pace. Right. And I it's a for those my Christian listeners out there. Watching a Tarkovsky movie should be like a Lenten activity. It's like a spiritual discipline. Like uh, once a week for Lent, you should sit down and watch a Tarkovsky movie. <laughs> it is a very different. I think you have a very different relationship to art. One of the things that I find, like this movie in particular, even though it's it's so narrative, but it was similar to Stalker. Like we can pick apart any element of it, even its narrative elements, but it resists you being able to easily make it all into a coherent narrative. Yeah. Um, in a way, in a way, a completely different seeming filmmaker might like David Lynch, who's also resistant to narrative. But Tarkovsky's not a surrealist. He's a he's a humanist in a profound way. I mean, he's a religious humanist, but mm-hmm. but he's a human. But yet, you can't <laughs> like if you try to read something purely narratively, you're never like you'll understand parts of it. You can make parts of it make sense, but then something else won't quite rock. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that I think that's almost deliberate. I think. I mean, particularly in these later science fiction films. Yeah, and it's like I mean, it's almost something Talmudic about it, right? There's like you have commentaries on the commentaries, right? And, and so right. The, it, the, un, the unfinishableness of it is part of what makes it um, divine, right? There isn't right. Yeah. Uh, and another a, thing that strikes me about Tarkovsky that's also different from Kubrick is Kubrick is a completely secular filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, Kubrick is almost Kubrick is almost completely devoid of hope. Yeah. Um, not just of like religious hope, but like even secular hope. Like yeah. watch Barry Lyndon. I mean, like there's like, um, and yet, um, what what Tarkovsky's does particular I mean and all of his cinema I mean uh, his cinema is often quite bleak um not just the sci-fi one I mean go watch Ivan's childhood it's it, you know about the Belarusian war it's but he, he he's infusing it with hope he's in dialogue with this completely secular literature that's almost more nihilistic than we'd even expect and trying to pull out theology from it yeah. Which of course often pisses off the the authors, um, who you know can share maybe a completely different worldview. I mean, like, but he told. I mean, like Tarkovsky kind of told you he was going to do that in Andrew Rublev. Like, it's just a thing that he does. Yeah. No, it's true, um, and it's almost like well, when in this movie, they actually spend time asking what the reason was that somebody gave what killed, killed themselves. Right. And so like suicide mm-hmm. is a, uh, a, a, a upfront topic in this movie. Uh, and the kind of, whether it is hopelessness or whether it is enlightenment or, or whatever, I mean, there's sort of debating, uh, you know, opinions on that that are given for each of the characters who kill themselves. But um, I think the movie wants you to ask that question um, because it does have a hope that uh, there's a way to overcome that kind of thing. And so, yeah, there is a, 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 uh, these movies will stick with you because there is sort of this unfinished uh, mental uh, state that it puts you into um, after watching it because of the um, unclosed loops uh, that you, you just talked about. Um, oh yeah. So um, I, I'm kind of um, done talking about this. Is there anything, any last thing you sort of want to add about this? I really had a great time. I feel like I understand the movie better as I always do, uh, talking to, to the great Derek Varn. And so, uh, is there anything you want to add before we, we take off? Um, I think, I mean, I would almost challenge every one of our listeners to sit down with a Tarkovsky movie, but I also want people to engage in the literature that he's reacting to. I really would like how Christians deal with limbs, profound existentialism, maybe even as more, maybe not even existentialist. I would challenge them to look at um, Roadside Picnic, you know, the stalker mm-hmm. um, film. I, I mean, the, the stalker book. And, and to wrestle with what Tarkovsky is doing with the secular literature, but also what that secular literature says in and of itself. Um I think Tarkovsky is like one of those is like Kubrick. It's like a lot of people that screen pretentious filmmakers in the same way that like Bergman does or, or, but I, I, I don't, I don't think it's that simple. No, I think if you're expecting modern cinema, as you said, you're going to be frustrated at first. It's not even like, yes, all old cinema is paced differently, even like 70s cinema. Yeah. But like, this isn't Coppola either. This is something completely different. Yeah. Um, it is way less narrative. Um, but I also think you kind of have to just sit with it 
and it's going to disturb you. And like I've been I've been wrestling with this movie and Stalker, this movie in particular. I think I saw this when I was in high school. And I've come back to it and come back to it and come back to it throughout my life and made commentary on it. Tried to wrestle, you know. I, I fell in love with Stanislav Lim just trying to figure out what was going on. <laughs> um, and then, like, laughed at his uh, <laughs> his misreading of Tarkovsky, Tarkovsky's misreading of him. Um, it, it even gets more funny if you, like, read about, like, Philip K. Dick, who's a profoundly Gnostic you know, thinker what he thought about Lim, um, even though you'd think maybe with their 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 technological pessimism and their focus on consciousness they would be allies, but they end up not being so um I mean it's it it's uh I, I think people should really dig into this stuff. But the one thing I'm gonna challenge people when they watch Tarkovsky movies, never forget his Orthodox Christianity. I think if you do not take that going in, you you can overstate it. I mean, he um, he definitely has secular themes, themes of sexuality, and, and the man was clearly no saint if you know about his life. But, like, I don't think you can understand his movies, really, without trying to wrestle with what he's trying to do theologically. I just don't think you can. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you there. And, honestly, I think there's a little meta thing um, in this movie at one point when – Oh gosh, it's around the con- the big debate that the all the characters have in, uh, around the birthday party of Snout. Um, there's a, a scene where Hari and uh, Kelvin are just sitting there staring at a painting called Hunters in the Snow, which is from 1565 by Peter Bruegel the Elder. <laughs> um, and it, it very intricate detail of the the scenes of this painting, right? And, and just like close-ups on this, close-ups on that, close-ups on this. And it's almost like Tarkovsky showing us that we should be like these characters when watching his films, right? It, it's just... Uh, sit through the close-ups, right, and just kind of bask, uh, luxuriate in the in the images that are that are there, um, because there's some kind of moral work being done. And, and, and I think uh, in because it's so unsettling, right. I actually am reading right. Mark Fisher's book, The Weird and the Eerie, right now for uh, my horror film class, and and he actually talks about this movie in his section on the eerie. And there's something um, eerie about the way Hari. Um, the reproduction of Hari is uh, because she seems to lack a kind of agency. There's something lacking there that should be there for, for Fisher. But what's that? Oh, I think that's true. Although, although she gains the agency throughout and can't handle it. Yes. Um, yeah. Of course, read that book because it's published, it's published by my employer. Yeah. <laughs> I assigned it for my class. Everyone loves it, by the way. Um, I have to say we, we read yeah, it in two I'm, parts. I'm, so, I miss Mark. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And um, but but I think that there's something there about I mean, going all the way back to the idea of iconography again. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think you can almost approach a Tarkovsky movie as a kind of icon uh, that forces you out of the, the patterns of your kind of day to day existence, which we could just get sucked up into. Um, and therefore, right. I think that they're really valuable as you are, my friend. Um, I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, you're one of my favorite guests and uh, favorite people to follow on uh, all the social media as well. Uh, so it was great conversation. Um, you're going to come back in a few weeks and talk about uh, Cynthia Ozick's book, The Pagan Rabbi with me, I think. Yeah, right? at least the short story, right? Yeah, like, the, yeah the short um, story. I have the whole book, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the short, short story. story. And I, I want 
want to definitely want to pick your brain about that one. So uh, those of you who listen, pick that book up. Uh, you should read Cynthia Ozick anyway. She's kind of awesome. And so, uh, yeah, for Derek Varn, my name is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast.